0: Well, in celebration of this year's running of the 125th Boston Marathon, Tracy and I read Meb Kafleski's book, 26 Marathons, what I learned about faith, identity, running, and life. Meb is a Christian, and he is among America's greatest marathoners. He was the 2004 Silver medalist in the Olympics in Athens in between 2004 and 2006 he won uh, Or he placed second and two third place finishes in both the New York marathons and the Boston Marathon But by 2007 and 2008 he began to be plagued by career-threatening injuries Uh, He especially had a stress pelvic fracture uh, which threatened his career and Meb writes in this book How often it is the struggles and the challenges in which we ask ourselves who am I? These questions around identity. And Meb's book captures this dynamic of this relationship between running marathons and the gospel of God in which both reveal who you really are. And in fact the Bible uh, says a lot about racing. In fact, there is at least 10 different references, both in the Old and New Testaments, that reference racing and running. And I think what makes marathons so interesting and compelling to uh, to many of us around the world is that they are parables of the spiritual life and of life and living. And as we look here in Romans chapter 1, and we're focusing specifically on verse 6 and verse 7 of Romans 1, where we are continuing this uh, sermon series on the gospel of God, one important result of the gospel is that the gospel secures a true identity. In the gospel, and in the gospel alone, you know who you really are. So let's focus on verses 6 and 7, and we're going to consider together briefly four truths of how the gospel results in true identity. So if you're a note taker, here's point one. It's that the gospel results in an identity that is received, not made. The gospel results in an identity that is received, not made. Look at verse 6. Paul writes, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. This call comes from God the Father. It's activated not by us, but by the will of God. Before we were even created, according to his own sovereign purposes. In fact, Paul makes this very clear in 1 Timothy 1, verse 9, where he says, You who saved us, he who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This gospel call results in verse 6 to you belonging to Jesus Christ. Having responded to the call of the gospel, you are not your own. You are possessed by God. You are possessed and owned by Jesus Christ. And part of the point here is that your identity is given by Christ and it is from him that you receive an understanding of who you really are. It's drawn from him. And this completely is in tension with one of the great cultural myths of our time in which we choose our own identity. In fact, it's probably well illustrated Many things we could point point forward, but Frank Sinatra's song, My Way, which NPR calls America's anthem of self-determination. You could go through the anthem, of course, and the last verse, he says, What is a man? That's identity. What is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. Not to say the things that he truly feels and not the words of someone who kneels. The record shows I took all the blows. I did it. My way. It's an inspiring American story. It's so empowering, but it's not true. <laughs> in fact, the late Peter Berger, who was one of the great sociolog- uh, sociologists, uh, professor at Boston University, in 1966 he wrote one of the leading, probably the, one of the leading sociological books of the 20th century with Thomas Luckman entitled The Social Construction of Reality. It's a a book if you haven't read, it's worth going back to and reading. And there, Berger and Luckman argue that the way identity is formed for each individual is that external forces outside of us socialize us into our individual identities. And it's these objective outside forces which lead to a process of internalization. Individual identity is formed through the social processes around us which powerfully shape our conscious and even deeper our subconscious minds. So we in the formation of our identities according to their theory we absorb the external realities and they become part of our subjective self, our sense of the self. And they go so deep this process of the socialization of the structures around us is in that we don't even recognize that what's happening so that we believe we are creating our own identity and they argue that self-determination is only one small factor in the creation of individual identity it's an interesting theory and I think the Bible would affirm this general idea but yet the Bible goes even deeper than what they argue. The Bible argues that not only is this the case around our society, but in fact, we are in a broken relationship with God. And because of this broken relationship called sin, it fractures the very inner self. Our souls are splintered. So that when we ask the question, who am I? We can't answer it. It becomes nearly impossible. And not only this, but others, others tell you things of who you are. And because they're sinners too, their voices become deceptive and misleading. And so internally within us and externally about us, we are being told who we are. But because of sin, none of it is quite true. The prophet Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That is the diagnosis of the scriptures in which when we try to understand who am I? The answer is we cannot know. Not in ourselves. We're captured in a labyrinth in which we cannot escape to have some true sense of the true self. What are we to do? Well, my friends, that's the point of the gospel. The good news of the gospel of God is that there is an escape. There is a sense in which we can come to know the true self. And it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the key to coming to understand the question of who am I? Rather being lost in this unsolvable maze. Rather than being deceived by false narratives within and without. God gives an identity. And what is it? that you belong to Jesus Christ you are his it's not something that you have created for yourself it is something that has been given to you and it's not given by society it's given by God himself the maker of heaven and earth reminds me of the story of meb kafleski in which he was dealing with a significant trial i think it was in 2011 he had been a highly successful Nike athlete for 12 years. Nike had been his sponsor, and enabling, Nike among others, enabling him to, uh, to practice and train year-round. And that year, Nike withdrew their contract from MEP. At the same time after that happened, uh, the Boston Marathon, uh, they who pay elite runners to come and to run with, within the race, they, uh, they made Meb a lowball offer. And Meb had a choice of whether to run in the marathon that upcoming year. What were they saying? Well, Nike was saying, Meb, it's over. You're done. It's time to retire. You can't just do it anymore. Why don't you retire before you embarrass yourself and you embarrass us? But Meb and his wife, they prayed, They prayed to God to give them direction of what he was to do. And even though this would cause great financial straits, he decided and he realized as he prayed, he said, I've not tapped out my God-given talent. I'm not sure how, but I believe I'm still to run. And I believe there's a Boston Marathon victory in me. So Meb didn't run that year, and he wouldn't take the lowball offer and I would suggest to you he didn't take it because he knew who he was. He knew who God had made him and he wasn't going to listen to the voices around him and accept that because God had spoken and God had said who he is and he knew who he really belonged to and that is what gave him great direction. And so my friends the gospel The gospel results in an identity that is received. It's not made. It's received from God. And it's to him that we need to go. But not only this, a second point is the gospel results in an identity that creates integrity within you. Look at verse 7. It's the second call of the passage. We're called to belong to Jesus Christ, but verse 7 says we're called to be saints, or to to be as saints, or just simply called saints. In other words, sainthood is not something that we get at the end of our life if we're lived according to the will of God and God puts the wreath of a halo on our heads. No, that's not what sainthood is. Sainthood is the declaration of God of who you are, that you've been set apart to him and that he calls you and empowers you through his spirit to live according to the will of God so that you become a person of total integrity in which his spirit and his will penetrates every aspect of who you are. That's what it means to be holy. To be holy, to know who you really are, is to be a person with complete integrity. But in fact, we are all born with a deep fragmenting of the soul, the sin, sin fragments us, it splinters us, it we, leads to a, a misalignment of who we are and we've become full of self-contradictions and Meb actually talks about this in, in this book, The 26 Marathons, in which he talks about running mechanics and the, the essential nature of being in perfect balance within yourself. And whether in training or in an actual marathon, the mechanics can get thrown off. And if they do, if you lose the integrity of yourself as you run, you, you'll slow down. He also shares in the 2007 Olympic trials, as he was running the race, unknown to him, he had this pelvic stress fracture. So that when the race was coming towards an end in the last few miles, and the, the lead pack was, was bursting forward, Meb, who had the strength to run with them. He didn't have the accelerating power because there was a fracture within him disabling him from being able to keep up and he wasn't able to. He also talks about in the 2011 New York Marathon in which he had a lack of integrity in his equipment. He had one of those breathe right strips that go over your nose. And before the race he had put it in his shoe as a way to transport it and meant to put it on. But then he forgot, and as he began the race, about two miles in, he began to feel what was in his shoe, and he knew immediately what it was, and he had a battle in his mind of whether he should stop or whether he should keep on going. If he stopped, he'd fall behind, and he decided not to stop and to run with the piece of plastic under his foot, which led to a significant blister, and it disabled him from being able to be victorious in that race. See, many things in a marathon can go wrong in which you lack integrity. And it's the same thing as we attempt to follow the call of Jesus Christ, in which we lack integrity within ourselves. Are you a follower of Christ, but do you lack integrity within yourself? Well, there are many ways that we can lack these. One is that we we believe the gospel, but the gospel is more like an appendage that's on the side of us. Whereas the gospel, the true gospel, is called to penetrate every part of you. Body, mind, soul, spirit, everything that you are, everything that you're about. You're called, not as an appendage to have the gospel, but to have it full. Fully penetrating your life and your actions and your motivations. Is the gospel an appendage? Or is it something that has fully captured you? We can also be fragmented in following this public process private dichotomy that we're all uh, expected to live by. In which you might be very faithful in believing the gospel in your private life, but when it comes to your public life, somehow you're a little bit different person. Now that doesn't mean that we're not to be wise when we're in public as Christians, of course we are. But no matter where you are, no matter who you're with, you are to be. The gospel calls us to be the very same person, without fragmentation are you that kind of person? Or there's another kind of fragmentation that we're all tempted by and it's to be a hypocrite. Hypocrisy. You might say exactly the right thing and people hear what you say and it's pinpoint right, but then somehow your actions are in tension with your words and they're not the same and that is a lack of integrity. It's a lack of holiness. No, if we're called in Jesus Christ, we're called to be holy. He calls us saints. And in this calling, we are to bring everything within ourselves under the Lordship and under his saving power. And it is possible indeed by his Holy Spirit. Point three is this. is that the gospel results in an identity that's based on God's love. So we go from belonging to God to being called to integrity now third the gospel results in an identity that's based on God's love and look at verse 7 it's to all those in Rome who are loved by God now of course verses 1 through 7 is a, a typical ancient form of a, a greeting and a salutation of the letter that Paul is for, uh, is is giving to the Romans he begins by addressing who he is And now he's finally coming after going through the depths of what the gospel are. He comes and greets them, who the recipients of his letter are. It's the Christians living in Rome. But this is not merely just a salutation. I would suggest to you that it's actually connected to this concept of identity. Because living where you live directly interfaces with your identity and who you say you are. In Rome, in Rome, that's the location. And it's location and community and culture and context which creates a collective identity in which we as individuals participate in and we draw our identity from. So being in Rome is actually quite important to who these recipients of this letter are. And so what were the characteristics of being in Rome? Well, they are important ones, Roman identity. You see, the Romans believed that the god Jupiter appointed Romulus to establish the great city of Rome and the Roman people were destined, they believed, to be lords and conquerors of the world. The Romans believed that they had achieved a perfect constitutional system and that it was driven by the the might of the Roman army. And it was led by Caesar, who was not just a mere man, but the son of God divine. And one of the great characteristics of the Roman way of thinking was that they had Roman religion. It was this Roman what they would call piety in which they had because of their religion they believed they had the power in their own identity to conquer many peoples, many cities, and many lands. In fact, they had this ceremony of evocatio, in which when the Romans were going against another people They would call upon that city's gods and invite that god to be on their side. And in exchange, they would worship that god even more than the people that they were about to conquer. And it seemed to work because Rome just spread conquering people, city, and land. You see, they were Romans and there was no greater identity to be had in the ancient world. And if you love Rome, for what Rome is, Rome will love you, no matter what your status in that society. And you see, they draw, the the Romans would draw their very identity from the place from which they lived. As with Rome, so it is with us. Let's consider the great city of Boston Arguably the most influential city in the United States. You consider our American history, our sports teams, our prestigious marathon, considered the most prestigious in the world. We're a major financial hub. We have the greatest concentration of universities in the world. We are the very center of biotechnology and of medicine and of healthcare. We are Bostonians! (laughs) And though we laugh, you know it's true. That we draw our identity from the various, not just geography, but from the various institutions that have prestige. And by being associated with those institutions, you have prestige. By loving those institutions, you are loved in return and you know who you are. And so Paul writes to all those in Rome who are loved by God, You see, when your identity is drawn from a great city or from what you do or from your accomplishments or the length of your CV, your identity is tied to something. Something that will fail in the end. Earthly identities, they want and demand your love. And if you give it, you might get something in return. But God's love is not that way. God's love is by grace. He loves you because he loves you. Out of his own sovereign choice and for no other reason. He calls you, my friends, beloved. That's just who you are. He loves you with all of his heart. And he calls you his own beloved. You see, when you identify and draw your identity from all the things around you, They'll fail. In the end. In the end they fail. We know this. We know that in our heads. But do you know it in your hearts? It will fail. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. That there are many things. That will pass away. But God's love. Will not pass away. And that love is for you. And when it is for you, the invitation is not to consider Rome, or Boston, or any other earthly identity, but to draw your identity from the one thing that can never end, the love of God for you. Do you believe this? Do you know it? Well, then finally, the gospel results in an identity in an identity that leads to the service of others look at verse seven in which he says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ this is not only the opening salutation that Paul is sending to the readers of the letter of the Romans no What Paul is, I believe, suggesting is that in the gospel, in the identity that it produces for those who follow Jesus Christ, God's grace in Jesus Christ lead to grace and peace being poured into you so that you can serve others. It's not about you just discovering who you are all about you. No. We are to find out and know who I really am not just for myself but so that in it and through it by God's grace and peace I can serve other people. Meb Kowleski experienced this in an incredible and very memorable way in 2014. Of course the year before we were all stunned and deeply saddened by that pointless and great evil of the Boston Marathon bombing. Meb had been there, right in the grandstand where the second bomb had gone off, but he had left just a little bit before that, that. And as he learned about it that very day, he committed himself in his heart that he would run that marathon again. He didn't run that year because of an injury. And that he would not only run, but that he would run to win and not for himself, but for others. He spent the next year, every day, visualizing each mile of the marathon. He would picture different miles, and he would see himself running, and he would practice running in in San Diego and other places where he was running, and he would imagine the different portions of, of the marathon, and then he would run that just as so. And then as he ran that day on 2014 in April, he had written the four names of the Boston Marathon victims on the bib on his jersey. It was his own strategy, it was, and he had always done this, to always stay in the leadership pack, but never to go ahead. Because you stay in the pack, and you, you use pacers or other people in front of you, and you draft off of them. In fact, elite runners, by drafting off to the person in front, of this, in front of them, they save about 20% of energy. So it's important that they do this practice all the way to the end, so they have enough energy to go forward and, and to try for the victory. But at the fifth mile of that 2014 marathon, Meb didn't do that. He says that he had a sudden inner vision to charge into the lead. One guy went with him, and, the, and together, they, they started to run and, and create a gap between the rest of the leadership pack. I wonder, who was Meb drafting? Who was he drafting upon? I wonder whether he was drafting upon the Holy Spirit who was charging ahead of him. At the 17-mile mark at the Newton Fire Station, there's a turn, and Meb looked back. He had already lost the the prior guy who was with him, and he looked back and there was not one person with him. He was running solo. He prayed to God for blessing and victory. He writes, I desperately wanted it for myself, for the city of Boston, and for the United States to bring redemption to all that had happened the year before upon cresting Heartbreak Hill He said the crowds were absolutely electric and he was pressing forward doing incredible uh, miles each time with his times. And as he came into the city of Boston at the 24th mile, Chibet, a Kenyan, was then closing the gap. You see, Meb was almost 39 years old, which is well beyond the prime of an elite marathoner. Chibet was, I think, 28 or 29 years old at the time. And not only that, but Meb's old wound on the bottom of his foot had blistered. And it was creating excruciating pain. And these runners, he's running about 100 steps a minute. Just over and over again as he absorbing the pain. He was running so hard, trying to maintain the gap, though Chibet was gaining on him, that he knew he was about to get nauseous. And this is how competitive he he is. He knew if he turned to the side that Tibet would see it because he was, up to that point, about six seconds behind him. And that if he did, had, if he vomited, it would only encourage Tibet to charge even harder. So he did what, I guess, elite marathoners who are incredibly competitive do. He put his head up and he swallowed. And he prayed, God, give me the strength of the victims. Give me the strength of the crowd. And please help me to get to the finish line. May your will be done. And he writes in 26 marathons, then came the right on Hereford Street and the left on the Boylston. And I took a look back as I ran past the 26-mile mark, just .2 miles to go. And I saw Chibet, but he was no longer closing. I pumped my right fist. I pumped my left fist. I nervously peeked back, but Tibet still wasn't closing. I pumped both fists, and I crossed myself again, just before the finish line at the site of the second bombing. I poured myself into the finishing tape. I had won the Boston Marathon, and I raised my arms, and I gave thanks to God. In the year following that senseless tragedy. Med became the first American to win the Boston Marathon in 31 years. And he became the oldest to win it in 80 years. He was carrying the names of the marathon bombing victims on his bib into victory. And in some real way, he brought some healing and hope to our city and to our nation. And friends, It's clear when you read his writing and he tells his story, he did it because his identity was in Jesus Christ. He knew who he was. And that's what empowered him to press forward, to press beyond the challenges and the wounds and the, the voices. Meb's 2014 victory was redemptive. And it served many people. But it only partially reflects the far greater marathoner, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 6.20 says, Jesus has gone ahead as the forerunner on our behalf. That's the only time that word is used in the New Testament. And it has the concept of wind The idea is that he's a forerunner that is he's running jesus is running ahead of us and i kind of wonder whether there's some concept of because he runs ahead everyone else behind us is in a draft of grace as we look to him and to look to what he has accomplished the writer of the hebrews goes on to say let us run in chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the forerunner who is ahead of us. Jesus knew who he was. He knew himself. He was in perfect integrity before the Father, and he was the King of glory, the Savior of the world. That was who he was. And he knew why he was running. He was not running for himself, he was running. For you and for me, verse 2 it says in Hebrews 12, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus ran the race of redemption for all humanity, not for himself, but to save you and me. Friends, your name is written on the bib of our lord jesus and when he crossed the finish line and when he said it is finished he became truly the victor of all of the cosmos and he did it out of love for you and he did it so that you would know who you are who are you you belong to the God who loves you, Jesus Christ. You are called, saints, to live lives of complete integrity in every way. You are deeply loved by God, who gave his very life for you. And finally, out of the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus, knowing yourself, you can serve others. That, my friends, is the result of the gospel. For in the gospel, and in the gospel alone, you will know who you are. Even so, Lord, may each heart here be fully taken by the Holy Spirit, even now. The places of lack, of fracture, the places where we lack integrity. O Lord, the places where we doubt your love, come and rapture us together. And may we know your love, who you are, and even so, know who? Ourselves, for your glory, amen.